0: Hey, I'm Pastor Wilson. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Renew is a church for imperfect people only. Over the last three months, we've seen thousands of posts, protests, and debates on racism. Although much of it has been helpful, as Christians, we're always asking, if the Bible speaks on this, does it have a position? We're spending July looking at passages from the Bible that helps us navigate racial reconciliation in a very divided country. This isn't just a hot topic for our church. At Renew, we value being a family that is multi-ethnic because that's what his kingdom looks like. Also, there's a few links in the description. We'd love for you to fill out a google form so we can help you connect to our community, bible studies, and events. Also, if you feel led to support our ministry, There's a PayPal link. And also, you can text to give. This week, Jonathan Whitmore, an elder of Renew, finishes up our sermon series on racial reconciliation. He helps us understand white supremacy and systematic racism through the lens of scripture. As a close friend, I can't tell you how much racial reconciliation means to Jonathan. I'm so grateful for his leadership at Renew and shaping our community toward being a multicultural family. Enjoy the sermon.
1: All right, well, good morning. That was a doozy, I know. I uh, have been around Wilson long enough to know that y- you need to give a real heavy question to start the message. But I think it's apropos because this is a heavy topic, and it's it's kind of somber. Um, so I hope your discussion was good. I feel really fortunate to get to share um, in this series on racial justice with our church. I'm really thankful for Wilson and just his leadership of our church and his message to start along with Eric and with Tiki. Man, I, th- I just feel like their messages are really important for our church to hear. And so if you haven't listened to those, kind of like Wilson was sharing, go ahead and go back and listen to one of them. Really encourage you to do that. You know, my hope for us as a church is that we would continue to be um, involved in this topic, that this would be an ongoing conversation as long as we're on this side of heaven, um, that it would continue to lead us to action. Um, And even though I'm wrapping up the series today, uh, I don't want us to stop talking about it. Like Wilson said, this has been a a topic for me that has been um, close to my heart for quite a while. My ethnic and cultural journey of discovery has been um, probably taking place starting about 15 years ago. Um, through some exercises and some discussion at a crew conference specifically, but it has intensified the last three years as Kristen and I have moved to work with Athletes in Action and college athletes. Building relationships with our staff of color and um, while leading in an organization that's majority white uh, has caused Kristen and I to go deeper on this journey, because it's been messy, and it's been hard at times. But I just want to say it's, it's very much worth engaging in. You probably noticed that I'm a white guy. As such, um, I feel responsible to talk about a couple of things this morning um, that, w- that are, one, important to hear um, for, for a white American male uh, to share with you, um, and two, is going to be a little uncomfortable to hear, especially if you're white like me. But that's okay. As author Austin Channing Brown says, our only chance at dismantling racial injustice is being more curious about its origins than we are worried about our comfort. It's not com- it's not a comfortable conversation for any of us. It is risky and messy. It is haunting work to recall the sins of our past. But is not this the work that we have been called to anyway? Is this not the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth? And to inspire transformation. It's haunting, but it's also holy. Being part of Renew has been very enriching on multiple levels for my family, but especially because there aren't many environments where we actually get to be in the ethnic minority, and we do here at Renew Church. And since the majority of folks that make up Renew would, would identify as Asian Americans, I want to begin this morning with some history of being Asian in the United States. The Chinese people were the first Asians to immigrate to the U.S. in large numbers. They arrived in California around 1850 as part of the rush for gold. Throughout the rest of the 1800s and into the first few decades of the 1900s, there continued to be ebbs and flows of other Asian immigrants to the U.S. And not coincidentally, there were also a few pieces of legislation that were passed during that time to prevent Asian immigrants from achieving US citizenship or receiving the benefits of citizenship. In 1910 and 1913 specifically, there were two court cases that classified immigrants from India as Caucasians, which allowed them to intermarry with US-born whites. That was the purpose of that, those court cases. And because of these decisions, a group of Asian Indians, on the basis of their Caucasian classification, pursued their right to become citizens in a case that went to the Supreme Court in 1923. And in that case, they were denied citizenship. The judges ruled that while Asian Indians were indeed Caucasians because they descended from the Caucasoid region of Eurasia, they would not be considered white and consequently were not eligible for US citizenship. This ruling made explicit the concept of skin color as a bar to becoming a citizen. And this racial barrier to citizenship was actually not removed until 1952. So, I'm quoting here, for the first 100 years of Asian America, the 1840s to the 1940s, the images of each community were radicalized and predominantly negative. The Chinese were called Mongolians and depicted in the popular press as heathens, gamblers, and opium addicts. The Japanese and Koreans were viewed as the yellow peril. Filipinos were derogatorily referred to as little brown monkeys. And Asian Indians, most of them Sikhs, were called ragheads. So after the Supreme Court decision in 1923, 64 other Indians who had naturalized lost their American citizenship. One of those men, his name was Vashno Daspagai, and I might have butchered the pronunciation there, so I apologize, decided um, as a result to commit suicide. And in his suicide note, this is what he wrote. I came to America thinking, dreaming, and hoping to make this land my home sold my properties, and brought more than $25,000 to this country, established myself, and tried my very best to give my children the best American education. In the year 1921, the federal court at San Francisco accepted me as a naturalized citizen of the United States and issued to my name the final certificate, giving therein the name and description of my wife and three sons. In the last 12 or 13 years, we all made ourselves as much Americanized as possible, But they now come to me and say, I am no longer an American citizen. They will not permit me to buy my home. And lo, they even shall not issue me a passport to go back to India. Now what am I? What have I made of myself and my children? I use that example because I think that legislation based on skin color gets to the very heart of who this man was, um, that he was made to be an image bearer of the king, but the legislation told him that he was less than, that he was not. I could have picked dozens of other examples from the past hundred years, um, and I say that because you might think, well, Jonathan, that was a long time ago, right? Haven't we mostly figured this out in the last half century? And I would say, you know, there, there are some things that are better. For sure let's not deny that but in short the answer is no we haven't figured this out and you know i don't have to we don't have to look far to see examples from today um, you know we've talked about police brutality towards black men and women um, you could think you could talk about ice raids and efforts of our government to remove men women and children to separate families of latinx descent and even violence towards Asian-Americans because of COVID-19. And those are just some of the obvious cases that are in the news. And so my premise here is that our country was built on the idea that being white is most desirable, and that if you're not, you're less than. You're not as valuable. And you know, I know this term makes our skin crawl, especially if you're white, and it might conjure up images um, to you. But we can refer to this as white supremacy um, and racism, of course. And really, it's just saying that the white race is up here and every other race is down here. And you know what? This is baked into the systems, all the systems, that our country runs on. It's baked into our political system, our economic system, our law enforcement, our entertainment, even our religious systems, and dare I say, even the Christian church. And this is what is meant when we talk about systemic racism and injustice. And the result is that the default way of thinking in our world today is that men and women of color are not honored, lifted up, and treated as image bearers of King Jesus that they are. So church, our mission is like Jesus' mission. We need to promote the life and dignity of men and women of color by skillfully, intentionally joining Jesus in undoing unjust systems. And just a disclaimer before I jump into the text. um, I want to echo Eric's words from a couple weeks ago. He said this is not a political issue. Um, He said it's a personal issue, especially for him as a black man. And I would add that it's about loving and caring for people. It's not a political issue. Inevitably, political or politics gets intertwined, of course, because some of what we're talking about, like my previous story, it just involves government and legislation and some of the systems. But try as best you can, as you listen to me this morning, to put your politics aside. I would just warn you that that's one of Satan's greatest tactics, his tricks, is to whisper in your ear oh, he's got a political agenda, and to draw a line between us to turn off the sound. So, with that said, let's put scripture in the middle of our conversation. Watch with me how Jesus experiences an unjust system and begins to put it right. Um, The text that I want to look at is in Luke chapter 6. It's kind of divided in half to many stories of his encounters with the Pharisees. So, let me read verses 1 through 5. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he gave also some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So I'm just going to pull one or two things out of here. Um, in verse 2, Jesus asks a question. And I want to examine the heart behind the question. Or sorry, Jesus doesn't ask it, but the Pharisees do. And when I examine the heart behind that question, they ask Jesus, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And just some context on the Sabbath, um, you know, breaking the Sabbath by working required the death penalty in ancient Israel. And so naturally, if you're faithful Israelites, you wanted to know what it meant to work, right? And so what happened was the lawmakers at the time, which the Pharisees and the scribes were, they devised a bunch of rules. Over 400 of them, actually, just about the Sabbath. Things like, you can't walk very far, you can't cook on the Sabbath, you can't light a fire, etc. And as a result, what happened was, the rules became almost impossible to keep. And I want to just observe that when we elevate law over people, we become hard toward people. And so Jesus replied to the Pharisees in verse 3-5, to is basically that, hey, I'm not breaking the law by caring for people's needs. And he gives the example of King David, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In in the context of that passage, David was running for his life from King Saul, who was trying to kill him, and he had some men with him. And he retreated into the temple because that was one of the only places that was safe. And as he did so, the only food that was available for him and his starving men, I'm sure they were on the run, so they hadn't eaten for a while, was this consecrated bread. Um, And the priests gladly gave it to them, right? And in that passage, if you turn back, we're not going to do that, but 1 Samuel 21, you'll see that the priests, nor David, are condemned for doing that. And nowhere else in Scripture is there any word that says that was not the right thing to do. And so Jesus uses that as an example here. And I want to ask, you know, where do we see this today? Have we made laws and rules that are impossible for some to keep? You know, growing up, like most of you, um, I was taught this system called meritocracy. Um, I didn't know the term when I was growing up. But essentially what meritocracy is, is it's a system of wealth, status, and power um, in which will, status, and power are given to people on the basis of their talent, their effort, and their achievement. And, you know, there's plenty of truth there. It's not that that's not totally right. That's, that does happen, right? When It's important to work hard. And when you do, often there's a, ro- a reward. And that sounds really fair on the surface, right? Um, and so what that produced in me growing up was when I saw a homeless person on the side of the road, or if I, I, I met or, or saw someone who was in prison, or maybe a, a single mom who had a bunch of kids out of wedlock, my immediate thought was um, they didn't work hard enough. They, they made some bad choices. Um, and again, while there may be some truth to that, I want to ask a couple more questions. What if someone doesn't have the prerequisites to enter into this system of meritocracy? And what if one of the prerequisites is your race or your ethnicity? Um, I have a little graphic here. It's a little cartoon. I'm not going to read it, but it's a fun illustration of this idea. Um, And I want to look at two particular ways that this might play out. Um, The first is mass incarceration. Um, You may or may not have seen the documentary 13th on Netflix, um, it's, a, it's a documentary that really details this pretty well, this topic. And in there, there's a couple statistics that I just want to share with you. One is that African Americans make up 6.5% of the American population, but they make up about 40% of the pr- prison population. And so it also says, while a white male has a 1 in 17 chance of ending up behind bars for black males... If you're a male born black in this country, you have a one in three chance of ending up in prison. Why might that be? Is it just because if you have black skin, you're not working as hard, or you're just making bad choices more often than if you have white skin? I would beg to differ. Um, And I think this is a good example of why it's important for us to get to know people who don't look like us to hear their stories firsthand. And you know, a great way to start doing that um, is is just, there's tons of great stories on this topic out there. Um, If you Google Maya Moore, I don't know if you know who she is, but she is a WNBA player, actually one of the best WNBA players out there. She was involved with Athletes in Action College a while back, but she's done some great work in the criminal justice system. That's a great story. Maybe you've you could read just mercy or watch the movie um or an, another recommendation if you've ever listened to the serial podcast um season three details a bunch of stories from the the cleveland criminal justice system it's it's also pretty compelling another way to think about mass incarceration though is this way just as an analogy um, if you've ever played a full game of monopoly my wife hates Monopoly. And so we don't play much Monopoly around my house unless it's Monopoly Junior with the kids. Um, but if you ever have, you may have found yourself in a situation where you wound up in jail, right? And actually, in this situation, you wanted to stay in jail for three rolls instead of coming out. You didn't want to roll doubles, right? Maybe you even had to get out of jail free card. And so when your turn would come up, you mentally kind of root against yourself succeeding. and. Um, you hope you don't roll doubles, why would you do that? What might the circumstances in the game be that made sitting in the jail cell a better option than continuing your trip around the board? As you sit in jail and realize that once you get out, if you keep rolling according to the rules of the game, you're doomed, What what might that begin doing to the rules of the game in your mind? Just something to think about. Another example um, where meritocracy might be applied in error is um, this concept of the model minority. And so back to the Asian American story. Um, since the 1950s, our country has flipped the narrative on Asian Americans. In 1966, uh, the New- US News and World Report, for instance, wrote At a time when Americans are awash in worry over the plight of racial minorities, Remember, this is the height of the civil rights movement. One such minority, the nation's 300,000 Chinese Americans, is winning wealth and respect by dint of its own hard work. Still being taught in Chinatown is the old idea that people should depend on their own efforts, not a welfare check, in order to reach America's promised land. First off, how do you think those statements impacted men and women of african descent or latin lat from from mexico or another latin country when they read that in his article why we must talk about the asian american story Too," brando starkey says the model minority stereotype is a myth that white supremacy devised partly to defend american society from the charges of racism leveled by black folk and those sympathetic to their complaints a century before Asians were defined as inferior because doing so promoted the interests of whites. But in the 1960s, the claim suddenly became Asians even economically outpaced whites because of their exemplary attitude. Just as blacks achieved victories against segregation and racial discrimination, some whites trotted out the argument that another racial minority was flourishing without the help of government assistance, the implicit question being, why aren't you? The notion that one racial minority group was advancing by working hard, minding their own business, and not complaining about the system was a rhetorical tactic for those who sought to justify their inaction on civil rights. So whether it's cultural ideology or laws put into place by government or religious leaders, we need to ask, like Jesus, does this promote life and flourishing for all people? And if not... Let's press in to change that system. So back to our text. we to read verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking And said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Again, I'm just going to pull out one or two things here. The first is in verse 7, it says that they watched him closely. Have you ever been watched closely? I imagine depending on your ethnicity, you, you probably have. Talk to any black person who's lived in this country for a while and they'll likely recite back a list of their personal experiences of being watched closely and suspiciously. In this case, uh, we, see the fear, we see the Pharisees watching Jesus closely with what we would call um, confirmation bias. And what that is, it's just when a person takes evidence that is contrary to their position and interprets it in a way that confirms their position. That's not honest thinking. And you know what? That's a human tendency. That's part of being a sinner, (laughs) like we all are. We all want to do that. But that's especially a tendency if you have power, if you have cultural power. And so this is kind of a caution, especially to my white friends. But in general, if you find yourself with power, be careful of confirmation bias, like the Pharisees. Um, One of the commentators that I um, was using as I was looking at this passage was, Uh, says it like this. He says, pay particular attention when the evidence feels most threatening or inconvenient to you. That is where your bias will be lurking. I think that's a great observation. Then in verse 9, you know, Jesus makes an observation or he asks a question. He says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? See, Jesus observes that the law is promoting death. It's not dignifying human life. And Jesus' question here assumes three things. One, it assumes that doing harm to anyone is not lawful. Two, that destroying life is not lawful. And three, that it is always the right time to do good and to save life. Back to my commentator. He says this about this passage. We might put it this way. To fail to do good and save li- or save life when you can is, in fact, to harm, to do harm and destroy life. There is no neutrality in the worship that Jesus teaches and models for us. So as Christians who follow the Lord, we cannot be silent about the plight of the unborn because we're on the way to worship, as if there exists on the way to worship a way to worship that calls a time out on saving life. As Christians, we cannot avoid developing a Christian view of black lives matter because black lives do matter. We cannot excuse ourselves from thinking this through because it's time to preach the gospel as if the gospel has nothing to say about doing good and saving life. We cannot pit eternality against temporality. Sometimes you have to save a physical life in order to have an opportunity to save a soul. He wrote that a couple of years ago too, which I thought was pretty interesting, especially with the times that we're in now. And so I just want to echo that. You know, we don't have to sign off on everything that comes under the banner of Black Lives Matter, just like we don't have to sign off on everything that comes under the banner of the pro life movement. We don't endorse the shooting of abortion clinic doctors, just like we don't endorse violent riots. In the cause of protecting black lives. You know, even I would just share that there are some doctrinal issues that I have with the Black Lives Matter organization, but I have a bigger issue with not loudly proclaiming Black Lives Matter because dignifying and affirming the image of God in black men and women is more important than fighting over doctrine. We intend to save lives, not take them. There's no contradiction in these things. Yet this is where where I see Christians get caught up today. My vision for our church, for the ministry that Chris and I work for, Athletes in Action, is that we'd be nimble, that we wouldn't get trapped on one side of the polarized political lines that our culture continues to draw for us. Let's be nimble, church. As Jesus said, be shrewd as serpents and gentle as doves. So hopefully, you know, I, I'm wrapping the series up, and I hope that you're starting to think, man, how can I apply some of the teaching from this series? And hopefully you've already been thinking that. But let me make a couple comments, and I'll give you a, th- a couple ideas. Um, first comment is, friends, this work of undoing systems and promoting racial justice is hard work. you will, If you engage in it, you will make mistakes. And you will be misunderstood. But what matters is how you respond to it. Man, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and I have a lot more to make. <laughs> and I'm not excited about, I don't like get excited about making mistakes. Um, I remember when I was a young staff member at USC, I was working with Um, a friend who's a black guy, and he's on staff as well. And I saw him one morning at Starbucks, and I walked up to him, and I I put my hand on his hair, his afro. And he gently took my hand off, and he said, Jonathan, don't ever touch a black man's hair. And I cringe right now as I tell that story, as I think about that, because um, I just think about my ignorance that, when I put my hand, especially with the power that I carry in this culture as a white man, when I put my hand on the head of a black man, it just comes across as demeaning. Um, it's, not, it's not treating him as an image bearer of the king. Um, that's one example of many that I've made. And I would just say, it's okay to make mistakes. And thankfully he was gentle and he helped me to grow and to learn. And so pro tip, do not touch a black man or woman's hair. We should know better than that, or probably anybody's, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, a principle, too, that I, um, that I have, have learned in, in leading um, is to be aware of your power. Um, for me, as a white man, I'm not the oppressed. I'm not the oppressed. That's a fact. Therefore, if I'm struggling or confused on an issue, I'm going to defer to the person who's historically been oppressed, not fight for my point of view. All right. So three things just as we close that I would encourage you um, to think about doing as you apply this series. The first is stay close to Jesus, not, not your newsfeed. If we're not close to Jesus, what happens when we're scrolling through social media and our newsfeed is we get defensive um, when we're not when we're not connected to the Lord and His Word, and then we begin always wondering, "Man, am I enough? Am I doing enough?" Um, and I would just share the tension that we have to live in, Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you made a decision and you know that Jesus has rescued you from death, then you're secure. There's nothing you can do to change that status. And so we're secure in Christ. Therefore. I need to get out of my bubble, and I need to be uncomfortable. So that said, as you press into Jesus, I encourage you to seek to understand some other ethnic minority perspectives and experiences through books, through movies, through podcasts, and especially those that might feel uncomfortable to engage with. Um, Remember your confirmation bias as you do that. Number two, um, I just encourage you not to fall into the polarization, the good-bad-split trap. There are way too many lines drawn in our world that are separating people and that are tarnishing the image of God revealed through men and women of different ethnic groups. And I would just tell you, when I don't cross lines, I miss out on knowing God. So instead, seek to build relationships with people and in places that you've never thought to engage with before. Learn people's stories. Um, You know, there are lots of great organizations in North Orange County, that would love to partner with you. Um, they'd love your help. As a church, we've talked about a couple of these, and I'll just list four real quick so that you know a place to start. Um, OC United, Solidarity, Hoya Scholars, and recently I learned about Camino Immigration Services. Those are th- four great places um, to, to begin building relationships with people that may not be like you. Another thing you could do is to pull out a map of Fullerton and or the surrounding cities where you live. Um, And I just challenge you to ask, where are the neighborhoods on that map that you feel are bad? Maybe a neighborhood that you wouldn't buy a house in. And ask yourself, why why do you consider those neighborhoods or schools bad? And then I would encourage you to consider prayer walking with some friends through one of those neighborhoods and ask God to speak to you as you do so. And lastly, just I want to encourage us, be teachable and humble. This is a lifelong journey. It's one step at a time. And as Wilson started the series with, if if Jesus humbled himself to come out of heaven to become a servant to us on earth, certainly we can too. My friends, we need to promote the life and dignity of of men and women of color by skillfully and intentionally joining Jesus to undo unjust systems. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this message. I believe it's from you. I believe you crafted it for our church. And I I believe that you want to make us men and women um, who help reconcile people to you. And part of doing that, God, is to undo systems that don't, treat men and women as image bearers of the king god we want to recognize that god you're creative and you have made um, just a beautiful array of people and ethnic groups to show off your beauty and your character and god we confess that we as a country and and even as a church sometimes we don't treat people that way and god we want to so please help us holy spirit God, allow us to press in, even when it's uncomfortable, God, and to love people the way that you desire them to be loved. God, so that they would would know you. They would know the King, the one who has rescued them from death. In Jesus' name, amen.